the best work is done in multidisciplinary teams. I have been quite fortunate to have had access to many people who have helped me navigate that in the past. And it doesn't require that you become an expert in medicine and engineering to really make an impact. And I do believe that if we can really focus the way that people approach this intersection between digital and health in a way that puts the patient at the center, then we can really change the way that health is delivered. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. With a knack for engineering and a passion for patients, Andrew Christer's career has taken this Jersey boy from radiation oncology to Apple to his current role at the Gates Foundation, where he's spearheading their efforts to leverage technology to improve the health of people around the world. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, um, Lisa, before we get going today, I just wanted to talk about something that um, I know that you shared on social media about a month ago, the passing of uh, your father, uh, an exceptional person, an entrepreneur. Um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, um, uh, in addition to expressing um, sympathy and condolences, are just wondering how you're doing. Oh, thanks, David. You know, I'm, I'm doing okay. It's, uh, it was kind of a shocking uh, thing, three weeks from cancer diagnosis to death. And... Um, I, uh, it really pointed out to me the unbelievable, you know, poignancy and challenge of what's going on on the coronavirus front, how many hundreds of thousands of families are experiencing something very similar with their loved ones. It's just a very challenging time for a lot of people. And, and so I'm appreciative of the support I got. I hope others are finding that as well. Well, well, I hope that you're able to find a measure of uh, peace and comfort from all the, uh, the love and concern that, that, you know, everyone feels for you. Thanks, David. Um, okay, so switching gears, um, we are um, we are very delighted to have um, uh, finally, I would add, uh, no pressure, um, uh, Andrew Trister joining us today on our show. So we welcome Andrew. Thanks so much, David and Lisa. Nice to right. see you. So Andrew, I know that you grew up in the lovely North Jersey town of Maplewood where East Street drummer Max Weinberg also grew up. But your story seems more properly to begin in Romania, where your parents both grew up and you and your uh, father and his wife actually first met when they were both kids. But it wasn't easy being Jewish in communist Romania and your dad and his family emigrated to Israel when he was 12. He started medical school in Italy at the University of Bologna, a beautiful town, uh, then hopped in, I think it was a beat up Citron to reconnect with your mom in Romania. Do you want to take up the story from there? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, David. So, uh, no, my, my story begins uh, in New Jersey. Uh, it really does. Mine too, by the way. <laughs> Jersey! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, but uh, tracing back all the way to uh, where my parents first met as, as young children uh, really did impact me. So as an only child, 
I uh, had a lot of influence from them and from this experience that uh, my father had of starting medical school, being in the middle of it, still having uh, love for my mother after being separated for years after his family moved to Israel and uh, trying to take the winter breaks uh, instead of going back to see his family, going back and visiting her and getting married in the middle of medical school at a point when he could no longer afford to go both to medical school and, uh, and have a family basically. And so ended up dropping out. But that, that formed the basis upon which I was introduced to the whole practice of medicine. He was a medic in the Israeli army prior to doing this. And so throughout my childhood, I was hearing stories of uh, anatomy and what it meant to, to train, but, never, but always with this like listful eye towards you know, never having actually practiced. And you so got I, to fulfill the family dream and we'll get to that. So it sounds like your folks came to the U.S. in 1978 and you were born the following year. Uh, and in growing up, you described yourself as feeling very much like an American within your family, but being perceived as an immigrant outside of your family. What did you mean by that? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, within my family, we really didn't speak English. Uh, so when speaking to my parents, who's uh, usually Romanian, my extended family eventually came over. Uh, they, they also escaped the communist regime. Uh, and so, I, but I was always the American because I was the, the first born here and, uh, and spoke with a very heavy American accent in my Romanian. And then when uh, playing with my friends, uh, the types of things that we did in my house were very foreign to them, right? I, I did not play baseball, I didn't play catch. And so that was uh, always uh, trying to figure out where exactly I fit in, but allowing me to go back and forth and see what parts I liked the most for myself. So this theme was of being hard, a mutual- Was it hard to, to make friends having that different sort of cultural orientation? Or was it cool for, for kids to want to do something different? I think it depended. You know, I, I don't, I'm not the most extroverted person. So certainly it was, I would say I didn't have a ton of friends, but those that I had were really close and did appreciate it. That's cool. Um, that is really cool. Um, and it sounds like you also picked up an early interest in engineering from your uncle. That's right. Yeah. So, so among this extended family that, that came to, we actually ended up living together in a two family home in Maplewood. Uh, my, my great uncle was an engineer of all sorts, but really trained as an electrical engineer and had uh, an 8088 AT&T XT computer and would let me play with it, uh, all the video games, but only if I learned how to program it. So that was my <laughs> introduction to, uh, to computing. And I know that um, you didn't have siblings, but starting when you were around seven, you'd return regularly to Israel in the summers to visit your dad's sister and her family. Uh, and then I understand through a tragic turn of events, this sparked or really intensified your own interest in medicine. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, though I didn't have siblings, I did have three cousins uh, who all lived in Israel. And uh, the eldest was one year older than me. And so we were, we were close enough in age that we would often play together. Uh, he would try to teach me Hebrew. His English was superb. And so we were able to communicate. Um, but uh, around, I think when I was about nine, uh, he was diagnosed with a posterior um, brain tumor. And so I started undergoing treatments uh, even while we were visiting. Oh my gosh. And then, um, and ultimately, um, she, she died from it, right? That's right. Yeah. So the year of my bar mitzvah, I, I saved my money, uh, the bar mitzvah money, and said I was going to go and, and surprise him. And unfortunately, while I was uh, uh, training for all of that, it turned out that he had fallen into a coma and ended up dying that summer. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Oh, my gosh. But, but you really sort of took a lot of that inspiration um, uh, with you, as we'll come to. 
I understand you went to a college at a University of Pennsylvania where you not only uh, met your future wife, who's also an engineer, but you pursued um, what at the time was a, a highly original major called cognitive behavioral science, now called AI, um, which enabled you to pursue both engineering and uh, pre-med. Is that right? Yeah, I, I was I was torn with this inability to really decide anything uh, when I was leaving <laughs> high school. So I was fortunate to find this uh, dual degree program that let me do things that I thought I was interested in, like computer science, while still uh, pursuing a pre-medical path. But cognitive behavioral science, I think of that as, um, you know, the science of sort of how people make decisions, influence and all that, right? That's so interesting. Why, why is it called AI now? How does it migrate from that to AI? Yeah, so, so the dual degree program was meant to allow for this uh, bilateral view. So you could start to build some models, uh, say, in computer science or linguistics, and then have them informed by what we understood about neuroscience. And so the, the training path allowed both you know, deep study in neuroscience and physiology, as well as in computer science and linguistics. Interesting. And well, did, you, did you get pressure from your family to go more towards the sort of bio side of it, uh, considering or, or they didn't? My, my family was super supportive. You know, I, I have to say the funny thing about uh, ending up at Penn was that uh, I knew nothing about the complexities of applying for college. Even though I, you know, the high school, I went, the public high school in Maplewood is, is superb and uh, does place people in, in great schools. And I had excellent mentorship there and a lot of good guidance because my parents were immigrants and really never went through the U.S. system. I was completely naive to, to what it would mean. So I just applied to schools that I thought seemed interesting and uh, had had some programs that uh, might piqued my interest and allowed me to do stuff. And Penn was a, a fantastic place, very fertile ground for that. Uh, it seems my, like you really loved it so much that you stayed on there uh, for not just for college in this dual degree program, but then you, you took the dual degree thing to the next level, continuing there for your MD, PhD, uh, and focusing your PhD on bioengineering and machine learning. My understanding is that you were gripped by a compelling idea that medicine might use technical tools to improve care. So what was your thought process around this? Yeah, so in the undergrad years, there was really, I, I was spending my time in two different labs. I was uh, working on computer vision projects in the computer science uh, department. And then I was working on understanding the most basic uh, fundamentals of how uh, neurons fire, uh, looking at uh, potassium uh, ion channels. And in both of those instances, I couldn't really see how do these things influence one another, but I, I got the sense that there must be a way. And so going to medical school to train in bioengineering and medicine at the same time allowed me some, some path to think more holistically about the products that one could build using software and hardware devices, but that really would impact the care that, that uh, we could deliver. Something I didn't know really very much about beyond you know, the volunteering and hanging out in the hospital. So that's where the medical training really drove. What, what year was that approximately? Uh, that was in 2001. Okay, so it's really early in the health IT sort of, the, very much health IT was still in the administrative services side of things, not in the biological side of things. So, so what, was that considered to be, you know, um, heretical by your program? I mean, did, did people support that idea or was it, you know, kind of laughed at? Uh, it was laughed at at some schools where I applied and, uh, and, and by many of my colleagues who were uh, computer science majors since uh, that was 
right before the, the bust of the dot-com bubble. So really the peak. Yeah, I remember it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so a lot of them were, were moving to California and, and uh, doing some really incredible things. Uh, and here I was saying like, oh, I want to continue to train. But yeah, it, it wasn't so much heresy, but I do think that many people kind of uh, caught their heads to the side wondering what, how exactly is this ever going to work? So it sounds like you decided to pursue radiation oncology at the University of Washington in Seattle, where very much to Lisa's point, um, your life became profoundly influenced by two exceptional mentors who very much appreciated exactly the potential and the, what was so exciting about this, you know, kind of unusual uh, uh, career direction. The first was Mark Rudine, and the second was um, our mutual friend, Stephen Friend. Um, can you tell us about how you got to know them and the sort of projects uh, you were then motivated to pursue? Yeah, I, I was really fortunate throughout, uh, truly having mentorship uh, all the way through in Philadelphia. But it was in this leap of faith in some respects of uh, after a dozen years in Philly, trying to figure out should I go somewhere else and how to extend my training that uh, that I tried to cast a wide net. And in, uh, in Seattle, in the Department of Radiation Oncology, uh, Mark Rudine had done exactly the same path. He had completed his mm. uh, combined degree at Penn, in the late 70s and moved to the University of Washington for his radiation oncology training at a time when radiation oncology uh, allowed for a lot more research. And that's really what I was looking for. And, and Mark has a tremendous research uh, career, as, as you know. And, and so I got to meet him when I was interviewing for residency and then really uh, asked him quite a few questions about just how how life would be in Seattle and whether there would be some path that would allow me to do both a clinic and to, to really run a lab, uh, not unlike what he did. Of course, I was not equating myself to, to what he was capable of, of doing, but he was instrumental in, in helping me navigate in those very early days uh, once I uh, did choose to come to Seattle and, and helped to introduce me to quite a few different researchers and, um, and navigate what the support would look like which is fantastic. It's so interesting, the role, particularly when you're trying to do something at the intersection of disciplines, right? One of the things that I think that we're, we're really coming to appreciate is for people who are trying to do something that's, that's novel and sort of untrod, untrodden maybe, and at the um, uh, intersection of disciplines, uh, the role of mentors to and sort of to help with the pathfinding and the guidance to sort of help you, someone who has the drive and, and the creativity to do something that could be different, but there isn't a path. And it sounds like it really was so unusually helpful uh, for you and for others to um, you know, really seek out and, and connect with these mentors. So one was Mark, um, and then the second one was uh, Stephen Friend. Do you wanna, who um, I, I knew from, um, I, I was sort of a founding advisor of the thing that he developed with um, Eric Schatt, the um, uh, SAGE uh, sort of program on open science. But do you want to talk about your relationship with him? Yeah, and actually it was exactly when he was founding SAGE and coming back to Seattle that uh, it was Mark who said, based on all of your background and interests, you must meet Stephen. You might hit it off. There's no guarantee. Maybe it will be a waste of your time. That's literally how he sold it to me. And I said, <laughs> fantastic. So uh, Stephen was incredibly generous with his time. 
Yeah, maybe give a little context. So Stephen Friend, like he, he's actually featured in this famously famous Natalie Angier's book, um, Natural Obsessions from his postdoc of all things. Uh, he's a pediatric oncologist, I believe, uh, who did a postdoc in Bob Weinberg's lab in the days of giants. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, um, sort of very famous stuff back then. Um, and then he um, uh, was uh, um, at Merck uh, running their oncology group before there was immuno-oncology, so there actually wasn't any oncology there, uh, to be tr truth be told. Um, but such as it was, he sort of was very involved in it, was very involved in Rosetta. Um, uh, and then um, he, but he's always been, had this incredible social uh, commitment and sort of public facing, you know, really trying to, he has a very, very positive belief in, uh, in people uh, that I think is expressed through this sort of sage open science initiative. And uh, so it sounds like you met him in that context. That's right. Yeah, he had, I think it was just him and uh, his long-term um, uh, compatriot and assistant, uh, Reg, had just moved back to Seattle. Nobody else had come back from Merck. But, uh, but really that was the, the structure that he was uh, doing. And I think he scheduled our first meeting for about 20 minutes and I was terrified because about the first 15 of those, uh, he has these piercing blue eyes and it looked like he was contemplating whether he wanted to even continue the conversation with me for that with, entire with, time. Was this before he had those like super funky red glasses and stuff? Yeah, no, no, it was with the red glasses. So that's like even more striking. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, very um, distinct. But that conversation ended up lasting like two and a half hours. And at the end of it, he summarized saying, this will be an inflection point in your career. You'll look back and realize that. And, uh, wow. and, and was was why did he say that? What was it about that moment that that was so poignant? I think that there was, we, we well, the conversation, uh, I, I, I can't even recreate in, in totality, obviously here, but it, it, it went from everything from, you know, ancient Greek history uh, and the impact on medicine to uh, the ways that uh, the social entrepreneurship that you're describing, David, uh, could uh, have impact to all of what was then starting to come about with respect to machine learning in general. His focus was, of course, on genomics, and that was an area that I had some interest in learning uh, more on. And all of it, though, seemed to be much more around how our relationship was starting to form more than the work itself. And that was now 10 years ago. And in fact, he was incredibly right. He's a very, very close friend. So was that sort of your version of like, oh, do you want to, um, you know, like, do you want to sell sugar water the rest of your life? Or do you want to change the world? I guess that because <laughs> that'll be ultra relevant in a minute. Um, so you were working with him, it sounds like. And how did you get started on this whole wearable remote device, patient, people centric stuff? Right. Yeah. So, you know, coming back to this idea that Mark uh, had told me about radiation oncology and doing research while training, uh, the, the truth is that the department was incredibly supportive for that. So they did allow me to take a year away from uh, clinical training and do a postdoc, uh, which I did with Stephen uh, and, and Sage. At that point, they already had some um, postdoctoral funding. NIH had allowed them to, to build this uh, Center for Systems Biology. And in that time, started to really uh, to work more closely with, with the people at SAGE and Stephen directly, trying to think about ways that we could even the types of data that we were collecting. So while we looked at genomics, we were getting all of this very rich molecular data about cancers, and we knew basically nothing about the phenotypes. Yeah. And so thinking about what, what labels we were using to even train these models, we started wondering, well, if we could measure phenotypes in a different way outside of the clinic, would that allow us to start to even the balance? 
And that led down this uh, rabbit hole of, you know, could we use ubiquitous computing devices? Are there other sensors that we could start to look at? And that was just as wearables were starting to be contemplated more broadly. So going beyond just a pedometer and things like the Fitbit. And how did, I mean, it's interesting because I think of that, this is how, how long ago is this now? This was in 2012. So at that time, I think, uh, or I'm confident, that most physicians were not interested in that stuff. They, you know, thought it was silly and trite. They thought the data was meaningless. They didn't want to be bothered to see it. Um, Some of us were, by the way, Lisa, I wrote this whole thing, how medicine's next great challenge was phenotype at scale. So I'm... Yeah, but at that time, you know, phenotype... was one thing and wearables was another, I think. And, um, you know, you're, you're both a doctor and a, and a technologist at this point. What, what was it about you guys, you know, and you in particular, that was so prescient that this would become something? What, why did you see past all of those challenges? Because most things that change physician workflow or, you know, change the process of, of stu- you know, clinical trials, whatever, is all kind of, it takes for 150 years to, to come to reality. Yeah, the, the reality is that I, I thought about things with respect to my patients that I was seeing in the clinic. And the University of Washington, particularly oncology and our, you know, small niche of that within radiation oncology, has a catchment area that pulls uh, people from, uh, well, Five states for sure is the only academic medical center for five states, but really much more broadly. Internationally, we had many, many patients coming from Pacific Rim nations and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what was the most complicated for me was that I would ask uh, attendings and think about this in my own sense of like how I would want to practice and realize that if we don't have the follow-up information from people, how could we possibly know what happened, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we were completely flying blind. And when we think about the engineering uh, ways that we would do this, there was always this concept of time, right? Most of our uh, equations would have like a delta T component. And yet that's what we were trying to elicit in the clinic. We would ask patients, like, tell me what happened over the last three to six months. Mm -hmm. And we are just horrible at uh, at being able to tell stories, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, conditions like cancers where, you know, there's all this recency bias, obviously, and that's just general. Mm-hmm. And, and so we started wondering, like, is there some way that we could make a more objective measurement possible and do so over time? And that's what the technologies really were starting to allow. But no one had any concept, just as they were saying, of, of how, how do you even begin to take that tsunami of data and make heads or tails of it? And in fact, I think I was quoted at one point in the middle of exploring this, as saying like no physician ever wants to look at your Fitbit data. Right. I still think that's true, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know many physicians who are asking people to open, you know, the health app on the iPhone and say like, let me see how your step count looks, right? Because that's not not the way that we're trained uh, to, to really look but, at those types of things. But it's also, but also I, mean, I think it changes the focus up to, you know, what people call real world evidence, but I would call like real life outcomes for patients. What they measure is the outcome versus which I think typical physicians, especially in oncology, would measure as the outcome, no offense, but a lot of times you either are or aren't a tumor, as opposed to, you know, you are not vomiting, right? (laughs) It's like a different kind of outcome focus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that led to a lot of, uh, uh, well, these were more difficult conversations, just like those that even led me to 
to training, trying to convince uh, the cooperative groups and other uh, clinical trialists to even think about including these, not as primary endpoints, but certainly as secondary, just to understand what that, that real life component really matters. So and, taking just, just the interest of time, um, I know that uh, Sage really set up a lot of the ecosystem, some of the early studies in conjunction with one of our earlier guests, John Wilbanks, uh, really worked on this e-consent, the patient-focused consent, the mat data rights, the privacy issues really, really well. It was incredibly important for a lot of the subsequent, like laying the groundwork for the uh, all of us work. Um, and at some point, this caught the um, attention of um, some obscure outfit in Cupertino, right? Right. So that, that uh, groundbreaking work that John uh, Wilbanks had done led us to start wondering how is it that we could support communities more directly uh, with these types of tools? People who may otherwise have been uh, less, uh, you know, have less of a perspective. So these are uh, like rare disease communities uh, that self-aligned uh, using tools like Facebook. And uh, together with, a, with another colleague who is also now at the Gates Foundation, Taya Norman, uh, we had a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to explore ways to connect people directly with researchers and ultimately to inform the clinical care that they had. And in talks on that topic, and, and, and we were contemplating this as really a you know, web-based portal where people would just upload their data. Uh, and John was also interested in ways that people could get access to EHR and you know, consent that. But that led down a completely tangential path uh, when Michael Riley, who had just been hired at Apple, was in the audience at, at the first Stanford Medicine X, hearing this idea about Bridge, this project, and thinking, you know, this is something that we might want to do with Apple. Wow. And so then I know ultimately, just to, to accelerate things a little bit, uh, you and Stephen wound up actually working closer with Apple, then ultimately moving over to Apple for a little bit, um, I, th I thought for a couple of years, um, as you really Apple sort of try, try to dive into this health stuff pretty seriously. What was your experience as, uh, and Stephen, you can't speak for him exactly, but you know, you, you, you shared a lot of this together. Um, you know, as a, a physician and medically trained person in Apple's culture, what were the, just in a summary, I guess, because uh, I also want to get briefly to your Gates Foundation work, what was sort of your thought, the, the best and the most challenging aspects for, for you guys of working within the Apple culture, you know, it, being immersed in, in the belly of the beast, because they're so secretive, you can't tell anything. It's just like this, you know, fancy woo stuff and, you know, devices everyone on the planet uses, but um, what, uh, uh, that are designed beautifully and awesome. But what was the experience like being inside of it all? It was, uh, on one hand, it was, uh, I had never thought that I would want to work at a technology company, despite having been uh, trained as a computer scientist. But it really, in many ways, was uh, quite a dream job, right? It, unlimited resources to start to explore things uh, was the way that it started. And there were uh, so many experts across so many different domains, all of whom were quite interested in ways that their expertise could impact health. So from that standpoint, it was tremendous. I think that the, the clear product focus that leads to those beautiful devices, uh, both designed and executed, is something I never, even in a million years, thought that I would learn anything about. And so even if I took a small iota of that away, uh, it was a really, that was a terrific, terrific experience. One thing though, 
that when I reflect back on now, and this is really only in retrospect that I can articulate it this way, it reminded me now of the time that I had when I was sitting in the first years of medical school, in those preclinical years, where uh, you know these very uh, esteemed professors would come and, and you know lecture us on uh, Krebs cycle or uh, some pathophysiology. And everything was always down to, you must know this because it will make you a better doctor. And there was never a question of why. And obviously those of us who do uh, topics like research are always wondering, always skeptical. And, and I think that that was, that was one of the pieces that was missing for me a little bit. Within mm-hmm. Apple and, and among engineers in general, I think there's always the idea that we can build a better product. And I, and I, I love that ethos. At the same time, though, there has to be some question about how this goes into the world and will it really make an impact? And, and, and that concept around research and being able to introduce that, I think it took a little bit of time to get to the point where, we, uh, where Apple was able to really uh, embrace that component, particularly as it impacts uh, healthcare and medicine in general. But I think this is, an, in a nutshell, the challenge that we see between tech and healthcare, right, is sort of the emphasis on product and technology versus the emphasis on biology and, and medicine. And it's so, it's so poignant at times. I think so the gap is so wide, you know, I mean, do you really need yet another blah, 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 you know, or, Precisely. you know, well, I, I you can see how, like, how an amazingly well designed product could enable one to think about questions mm-hmm. that you wouldn't have thought about asking right. had they not existed. So it is complicated, but I can see how with some of those, not quite doubts, but questions or that mindset, that could suddenly, when there was an opportunity, it sounds like, to join the Gates Foundation, that might, you know, that, that sounds very different. Um, uh, do you want to just very, maybe briefly, to the extent possible, explain how you did that, um, what motivated you to, to move, and just at a high level, nothing, you know, that only what you're sure. sort of discussing, what, what, what most excites you about your current opportunity? Yeah, so so currently I lead uh, digital health and innovation at the foundation. It is the Gates uh, Foundation. The Gates like Foundation. Bill yeah. Gates, that one. Yeah. Right. And uh, the the question I had coming in was uh, why now? So you know, there's probably no one better suited on the planet to think about ways that digital products could impact health at the global scale than than Bill Gates himself. And having built a number of uh, very strong platforms and thinking very, very deeply about the intersection with healthcare and healthcare delivery and specific diseases that impact uh, billions of people, I saw this opportunity, but really was questioning, as I was mentioning now, like, what is it about now that matters? And the the answers that I had were really what what I think motivated this transition, because it, it comes down to the impact that technologies like smartphones and the connectivity of those phones to the internet have already had on societies, even among uh, the glo- within the global south, among the poorest uh, people. And so to imagine building a health system on top of that infrastructure is, is more or less the mandate, uh, not, not just of oh. my team. We work very closely with many others uh, to, to envision how that's going to come together. But together with the product focus that I learned a little bit about and this opportunity to think about what could be in three to five years, 
uh, it was uh, both a crazy challenge and, and one that I, I felt uh, really energized to, to go after. And my understanding is while you're not yet part of the um, bridge club with uh, Bill and Warren, um, you're actually getting a remarkable amount of face time. And uh, it sounds like you're finding that like authentically valuable. Absolutely. My, so in, in the last uh, five months, uh, my team has uh, ended up becoming uh, almost exclusively focused on uh, the coronavirus um, pandemic, not unlike a lot of other teams at the foundation. But the different approach that we have, particularly to finding ways that digital tools could empower uh, access to testing, uh, introducing uh, different educational pieces to people who uh, who maybe think you know maybe learning about things that might be misinformation those uh those applications and working uh, closely with our grantees in that space has led us to really think about uh, different ways around what a diagnostic test could mean for people and how to expand access to those tests so rather than as an example having to go to a health system and get a, a nasopharyngeal swab which basically is a very long thing that goes straight back through your yeah, nose. Yeah, brain biopsy almost, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, very, very painful procedure for those who've had it. Uh, we have already been working with the diagnostics team to find ways that people might be able to sample their own uh, aerodigestive tract to, to do this maybe uh, at home, or if they do it through a drive-through to not expose the healthcare worker uh, potentially to, uh, to coronavirus, to protect health workers and to allow uh, greater uh, access to testing. That all can be tied up in a, an app or some other online experience where a person might be able to register their symptoms, get access to a test, and then have that test uh, sent back for, te for um, evaluation. And there's so certainly a number of companies, I mean, there's at least five or six I can think of off the top of my head that have figured out, so they say, ways of doing this, whether it's, you know, through, through saliva or blood or whatever, and that are trying, you know, got some of, some of them even have some, you know, temporary FDA allowance to do it. And I just wonder what, you know, what are you seeing that gives you comfort uh, that this is really going to work? Because I think a lot of these tests are fairly unproven in terms of their sensitivity and specificity. And obviously that's going to matter a fair amount, especially the sensitivity on the testing side. So how do you, how do you get to the place where you believe? Yeah, so a lot of a lot of research, and so we have been funding dozens of studies. A lot of the companies that are using uh, self collection kits uh, are actually referencing data that uh, that those studies that we funded um, have produced and made into a master file accessible by the FDA. So we've we've done that under uh, the guise of an MOU with CDRH. Mm -hmm. So that, that allows the ecosystem in general. So this is really meant to be more catalytic in the, in the, in, in the forefront to allow others to, to take this and, and make it into a product. We still are working with grantees to ensure that there could be even an open labeled version of those same kits so that any public health lab or any other company really who wanted to offer this uh, for beneficiaries could do so. But at the moment, yes, it has been a lot of entrepreneurial companies that do have access to lab testing to do this. I'm relatively bullish about uh, collecting from antirinaries in particular. So like a person can swab their own nose. I mean, people stick things in their nose all the time. Like why not a swab, <laughs> right? I, I, I'm still waiting to see the results of larger scale tests from saliva or sputum. I think that those are 
likely to be very valuable types of collection for uh, for coronavirus. The question remains, can you do it in a way that is reproducible uh, across many, many people? And I think that that's, that's the question right now. So are the set of instructions that you give a person sufficient to really get a good sample to not destroy the sensitivity? It is so interesting because the technology itself, like it, it's, it's an individual, you know, it's how someone interacts with a particular tool or a particular device, but you're interested in the impact at the population level. So it's, uh, it, it's really interesting. Well, I'm so appreciative of you being here, of the work you're doing, um, the example you set. Um, I imagine the mentoring you're doing uh, for, you know, for uh, so more people can follow, um, be inspired to follow your path. I'm so grateful that you're able to join us uh, today on our show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, Andrew. All right, well, that was, um, uh, it was so great to talk to him and to try to get even the beginning of a feel for all, uh, all that he's done. What do you think, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, it's always, it's always fascinating to talk to people who are at the beginning of something, right? You know, like we talked to Craig Lipset, was at the beginning of virtual trials. Right. Trials. Mm-hmm. I to him about the beginning of, you know, real world evidence concept or you know, conceptualization or the integration of cognitive behavioral health and IT. So I, you know, it's always it's always a lot of fun and it's gotta be um, wild right now to be working with Bill Gates and, you know, considering all that's going on in the insane mix of science and um, pop culture and how they're colliding. <laughs> I think you're politely saying all the wacko conspiracy theories around oh, him. That, yeah. Oh mm. my gosh. But um, but it's really, I mean, to have an opportunity for impact and to really be stepping up. Um, just so, just like a, a good person doing good things. I'm just so um, the, you know happy for him and, and, and so, so deeply believe in what he's going to be able to continue to be able to accomplish. Yeah. Um, please remember to uh, rate us on iTunes and leave a comment and help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in the heart of quarantine at our respective domiciles in California. Stay well. Wear your mask.